I, uh, I love a good story. Uh, stories uh, teach, and they're memorable. Uh, it turns out that uh, that's the way we uh, human beings learn. We learn much more from stories than we do from raw data, which is why the Lord seems uh, content to tell us stories. I have a story for you this morning. It uh, might be a bit chilling when you first hear it. It's a remarkable story. It's one that uh, perhaps you've not uh, heard before. It's found in Numbers chapter 15. Uh, If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to uh, turn there. It's an incident that took place during uh, during Israel's wilderness wanderings. And we're told that uh, on a particular day, while the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Uh, Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody, detained him for a while, because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. Good grief, uh, Charlie Brown says. You know, here's this uh, poor fellow that goes out to gather up a few sticks to warm his hands, feed his family. Seems like such a trifling thing. Turns out to be a capital crime for which he uh, pays with his his life. Uh, The lesson is uh, this. Too much activity can be hazardous to your health. Um... If this uh, verdict on the man's activity seems uh, harsh, there are some uh, factors that that soften the story, some mitigating factors. The first is that the man's activity was recurrent. The uh, Hebrew tense that's used for this word gathering suggests repeated activity. This fellow got up Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath to gather sticks, even though he knew that uh, for some reason it was against the law to light a fire on the Sabbath. Uh, this was not uh, accidental uh, resistance. This was uh, rebellion. Uh, this was not a small thing. This was a determined, defiant sinner. He knew exactly sinner. He knew exactly what he was what he was doing. He was willful in his disobedience. This story is actually an illustration of the uh, distinction that Moses makes between unintentional and defiant sin. That's spelled out in the paragraph that uh, precedes, uh, Numbers 15, uh, 27 through 30. If one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. And when atonement has been made for him, he'll be forgiven. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people. Uh, This uh, incident of gathering wood on the Sabbath is placed here in this particular context because it perfectly illustrates what uh, Moses is describing, the distinction between unintentional and and deliberate defiant sin. Unintentionally is actually the wrong word. Uh, Gives us the impression that this is accidental sin. 
that uh, uh, word unintentional preserves an old but erroneous distinction between witting and unwitting sin. If, if you've read any from the King James Version, you've noticed that in this particular passage, there's a distinction made between what the translators, the, the authorized version translators, call witting sins and, and unwitting sins. And again, the impression left is that there are some accidental sins and you're unconscious of what you're doing and there are others that are more uh, deliberate. Actually, the Hebrew word just means to go astray, to err, uh, to sin. Uh, it's a word that's used for serious, deliberate transgression, sins of, of the flesh. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament for lying and theft and perjury and debauchery and a whole bunch of uh, sins, some of which are quite intentional and all of which can be forgiven. They could bring an animal and that animal would substitute for them. So we're not talking here about accidental sins. The distinction is between deliberate sin and what Moses describes as sins of defiance. The, the Hebrew idiom is a sin with a high hand. Putting your fist in God's face. In your face, God. It's that kind of sin. It's rebellion. It's uh, treason, high treason uh, against God. And there was no forgiveness for this sin because this was the sin of rejecting the God who forgives. This is the sin of turning your back on the one who has offered to forgive any and every sin. That's what this man was doing. I will not rest. I will go gather sticks. This was a sin of of defiance, of rebellion, This was no ordinary sinner. There's something especially perverse about this man and very significant that he takes out his rebellion on the Sabbath day. I will not rest. That's the idea. Now, perhaps the most significant aspect of the story is what follows. If you want to read on in the context, verses 37 through 41, Moses uh is told to tell the, the sons of Israel, children of Israel, that they're to put fringes on the corners of their garments, a little tassel, with the blue thread in the tassel. And that custom obtained clear into Jesus' time. As you know, our Lord had a fringe on his garment. That's what the woman with the issue of blood uh, touched. Uh, Jesus himself referred to the fact that the Pharisees wore, made their phylacteries broad and their tassels long. They were showy. They were Austin ostentatious in their in, in, in their piety. But the original purpose of the tassels was like a, a string on our finger to remind the sons of Israel to remember the Sabbath. See, apparently the Sabbath is a very, very important concept in the Old Testament. And the fringes were to be placed on their garments. So every time they looked down, they would see those fringes and they would not forget to remember the Sabbath. Sabbath is very, very important. A couple of months ago, we had a, a consultant come out and spend a day with our staff, minister to us. And uh, he made some very, I thought, some very insightful comments about the Sabbath. Uh, as a result of which, I began to do my own study uh, on the Sabbath, a lot of reading and 
thinking and, and, and pondering on this particular issue. And what I would like to do for the next two Sundays is just share with you some of the things that I that I came to see. I want to talk about the theological foundation of the Sabbath this morning. And then next week we'll talk more about the implications of it and what it says to uh, to us about our desperate need for uh, for rest. It's a good word for us uh, compulsive uh, workaholics. And I can see a lot of grins out there you, you can identify. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, the Sabbath is the oldest and most important institution in the world. I want you to grasp that fact. Sabbath is the oldest and most significant institution in the world. Turn, if you will, to Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. Chapter 1, as you know, is the story of creation. The point of which is God really does care for us. He made a wonderful world of enjoyment for us. Uh, People get hung up on creation theories and cosmologies and miss the whole point of chapter 1. Chapter 1 is God's love written large in the universe. Uh, Chapter 1 shows God's love for the human race chronologically. Chapter 2 shows God's love for the human race logically. Puts a man and a woman in the center of everything he created. And then he says, enjoy. This is all for you. Chapter 1 tells us that God created for six days, and then he sat back to rest and luxuriate in what he had done. He says, oh, that is beautiful. The, The Hebrew word good in some contexts, means exactly that, beautiful. Beautiful in terms of what? Beautiful in terms of us. He did it for us so we could luxuriate in what He has done. Six days of creation all for our sake, and then we're told that God took a break, took a day off, rested. By the seventh day, verse 2 of chapter 2, God had finished the work He had been doing, So on the seventh day he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day. The word has the idea of making something heavy, giving it significance. This is a very, very significant day. And he made it holy. Holy means set apart, different, unique, unlike any other day. Because on it he rested from all the work of of creating that he had done. God creates for six days, and then he gives that special day, special prominence, both by example and by precept. He himself rested, and then he set that part that day as a special day of of rest. Uh, I think it was Augustine who first pointed out that that phrase, it was evening and it was morning, occurs in every other day except the seventh day, the point of which is the day goes on forever, talking about God's eternal rest here. See, the whole point of the Sabbath is that God created a world for us to enjoy, and then He sat back so we could, He could rest, and He set the example for us so that we could rest in what God is doing and has done. We don't have to work so hard. We don't have to put out so much energy. We can relax and luxuriate in what God is doing for us. That's what the Sabbath is. 
is for. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for the human race, not the other way around. And we were were not made for the Sabbath. It wasn't intended to be something onerous. It was a blessing. A special day on which God wanted to shower his, uh, shower good things on us. Now, th- this idea of a restful seventh day, interestingly enough, is rooted in, in the history of the race. As far as you go back, you find calendars with uh, rubrics over the seventh, fourteenth, uh, twenty-first, twenty-eighth day. The Babylonian calendars, for example, all have a special sign over those days to indicate that they're set apart, they're unique, they're different. They even, some of the, some of the tablets even have the word Shabbatum to designate that day, which is a word that's cognate to the Hebrew word Shabbat, which is the word for, for Sabbath. It's exactly the same word, just a slightly different, uh, rendition of it. On one text, the Shabbatum, the day of rest, is called a day to rest the heart. As far back as you go into history, there was this concept that there's a day on which we can not only our bodies, but our spirits and our hearts uh, can rest. There's some major differences between the Babylonian Shabbatum in the, in the, in the Hebrew Shabbat, the, in, the, in the Babylonian law books. Uh, you know, physicians could take a day off, and kings were not to be involved in any state business on that day. But the, you know, the common working stiffs had to still get up at eight o'clock and work from nine to five, and they had to work seven days a week. In Israel's more humanitarian Sabbath, everybody got to rest. That's the point. But rooted in in a racial memory is this idea that goes all the way back to creation that we're intended to rest. That God is at work. Our work is to enter into His rest. Now the second reference to to the Sabbath and actually the first occurrence of the word Shabbat uh, Sabbath is in Exodus 16. If you'd like to turn there with me, uh, this particular uh, reference is in the context of gathering and preparing manna. You know what, what the manna was? It was the bread from heaven. It was God's provision during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. Every morning they got up and on the Bushes and ground and all around them was something that looked like hoarfrost and they began to gather it, found out it was edible. When they first saw it, they said, uh, Manu? It's the Hebrew word for what is it? And the name stuck. Through all history, it was called, what's it? What, what, what is this? Manu, manna. And, uh, God faithfully, uh, uh, delivered the daily bread except on the seventh day. The the, the first week that the manna fell, they gathered manna for five days, and on the sixth day they went out to gather manna, and there was twice as much as had ever fallen before. So they they gathered two omers, two two bushels, instead of one, and and they they asked Moses why, and he went to the Lord to find out, and the Lord said, well, because tomorrow is a special day. It's It's a day of rest, see? This is what the Lord commands. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. And they prepared manna a dozen different ways. Uh, Moses' uh, wife put out uh, 
uh, I suppose, a, a book of, uh, of menus, manna menus for Israel, and they baked it and boiled it and fricasseed it and fried it and blackened it. You know, they did everything you could possibly do to the manna, and, and it, it, was, it was wonderful stuff, more than just edible. It was wonderful to taste. But on the seventh day, there wasn't any. But they had twice as much on the sixth day. Now, what was the Lord saying? Well, I'm going to take care of you. I, I, I just want you to rest. Take it easy. Take a day off. You don't have to gather manna today because I'm going to provide twice as much as you need. You have one omer for Friday and put another omer on the shelf and Saturday morning on the Sabbath and take it down. And That's my gift to you. Twice as much manna as you've ever had before. Well, what is God saying? Well, I'm, I'm going to make provision for you before the fact. Eh? I'm going to anticipate your needs. I, I, I'm going to work. I don't want you to work. Rest. You know, busy people being what they are. The, some of the sons of Israel got up the next morning and they began to look for manna, but the cupboard was bare. There was none there. God is saying in the most graphic way, I, I want you to take a day off. I want you to rest. Now the next reference to the Sabbath is in, in what Moses calls the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Here, the Sabbath uh, idea is, is codified and put in Israel's national constitution. It's like a, the law was the constitution of Israel, just as our uh, constitution is is the governs our our nation all, all the laws are evaluated and judged by that by that law so the sabbath law is written right into their into their constitution uh interestingly enough the incident that took place in number 16 the uh, uh the the story of the manna actually uh, took place before pardon me exodus 16 actually took place before the law was given. So again, this idea of Sabbath was there, but the law codified it. It made it a part of, of their legal system. Uh, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day. It's an interesting statement. It could only mean that they already know about the Sabbath day. This section of the code simply calls it to their attention. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your maid, manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates for whom the Sabbath could have no religious significance, or probably wouldn't. They would be pagan. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. See here, Moses roots Sabbath observance in God's six days of, of creation, but extends it to cover uh, animal life. Your animals get to rest. And your servants get to rest. And your sons and daughters get to rest. And your foreign slaves get to rest. Everybody and everything it's to rest. Okay? That's the important thing about, about this law. The Sabbath law was written large for Israel because God wanted 
his people to know that the work was already done. All they had to do is enter into it. See, he roots this law again in creation rest. The Israelite who observed God's Sabbath was resting because God had done all the work for him. There wasn't anything left to do except to enter into that, that rest. Now, the next reference to the, uh, to the Sabbath occurs in the, uh, in the context of the construction of the uh, tabernacle, Exodus 31, verses 16 through 17. Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant, an eternal covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, And on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. I suppose the point to be made here is that the Sabbath law obtains whether we're talking about so-called sacred or secular work. See, they were building the tabernacle and they might think, well, we just, we have to be more industrious. We have to work harder because we're working for God in this case. And he says, no, even your service for God comes out of, out of rest. I want you to take a day off, even though you're engaged in in tabernacle uh, building. I want you to rest. Here, the Sabbath is given the additional significance of a sign. It's called a sign. It signifies something. It signifies something. Remember Jesus' signs, the, the, the miracles that He worked. He called them signs. Why? Because they were in an ultimate sense, a revelation of the character of God. So here again, the Sabbath is said to be some manifestation of what God is like. He's freeing us from the performance trap. He's at work, both the will and to do of His good pleasure. So we can rest. doesn't make a difference what endeavor we're engaged in. We can... We can do it out of that wonderful sense that God is is the one who's at work. The next occurrence of the Sabbath law is with regard to springtime and harvest. It says, you shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during planting time and harvest you shall rest. See, harvest is the busiest time of the year. That's when the hardworking farmers had to go out and work in the any industrious farmer would know that he has to put in seven-hour days. But even then, God wouldn't let them work harder. Why? Because He wanted to provide. He wanted them to understand that that it, it wasn't their labor that produced the results. It was His giving. So again, uh, this concept of Sabbath grows out of the idea that even when when His people are not working, their work is getting done. Because God is working. The next occurrence of the Sabbath is in what we call the second law. Uh, As you may know, the book of Deuteronomy, the name for the book of Deuteronomy, the title for it comes from the the Greek word for the book. It literally means second law. Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses gave while Israel was camped in the plains of Moab waiting to enter the land of Canaan. So here you have a a new era in Israel's history. They were facing... uh, adversity in a way they'd never faced it before. They were going to be fighting Canaanites. They weren't equipped for that kind of warfare. They had no cavalry. They had no mounted troops. They, they, most of them didn't even have weapons. 
And God is preparing them to go into the land and enjoy everything that God was going to provide for them. So he gives them this uh, second law. It's a reiteration of, of the uh, fourth commandment in, uh, that was given at Sinai, the one that I just read from Exodus 20. I'm not going to take time to read it except to say that that there is a, a significant addition on it, that is, on the Sabbath day you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or your maidservant, nor your ox or your donkey or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When they were in, uh, when, when the children of Israel were in Egypt, of course, they were slaves. They worked uh, from sun up to sundown, seven days a week. They had no time off. God delivered them from that, from that slavery, that drudgery. And they were to remember the Sabbath because they had been freed from drudgery. Okay? Freed from that hard work. And their maidservants and their manservants were to gain the same, the same freedom. But more significantly, again, is the fact that God himself is the one who who did it. They did not deliver themselves. It was God who set them free. And so the Sabbath was a way of remembering that God was always working on their behalf. That he was not an absentee God. That he was involved in everything that was going on in their lives. He was at work, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Paul puts it through their daily activities and therefore they could uh, they could rest. Now that that principle of a recurring daily, uh, recurring weekly day of Sabbath is expanded into, uh, into, uh, a Sabbath year. As you know, every seventh year was a sabbatical year in Israel when their fields were to lie fallow. They were not to work the fields. They were not to sow or to harvest. And that would be terrifying to, in an agrarian, agrarian society. These people are not hunters, you know, and that, by and large, they they raised crops. Uh, they had uh, sheep, of course, and oxen and other sources of food, but primarily they were dependent upon their crops. Now, just imagine if you're a farmer and you're dependent on your uh, the produce of your fields to take care of your family, and God says to you, don't plant anything this year. Let your land rest. Well, uh, well you know, there there. There are some good things to be said for letting the field, letting any field lie fallow for a period of time. That's uh, there are good agricultural reasons for doing that. This was not primarily for the land; it was for the people. It was to teach them to trust in God's provision. How do you feed your family when you don't put in any crops? Well, God said, "If you follow my decrees," this is in the same section, verses 18 through 22. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you'll live safely. The land will yield its fruit and you'll eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? God says, I'll send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. See, this is the law of manna written on a larger scale. Sixth year would be such a productive year that it would carry you through the seventh year and it would actually carry you into the eighth year because you'd have to plant crops in the seventh, in the eighth year in order to have something to eat in the ninth year. And so for a three year span, Israel was provided for. 
Are you beginning to understand what, what God is saying? Will you please relax? Will you rest? Will you trust me? Why are you so compulsive and obsessed about everything in life? Why are you so driven? Will you please just settle down and let me provide? That's what the Sabbath is all about. Now, I don't have time to elaborate on it, but there is a final aspect of rest, which most writers identify as Canaan rest. So here's Israel poised on the plains of Moab, ready to enter Canaan. And they were going to face walled cities, which they had never even seen before. There were no walled cities in Egypt. Uh, they were unequipped, untrained for war. The Canaanites were some, uh, uh, some of the Canaanites were some of the fiercest warriors in ancient times. They had chariots, uh, they had, uh, siege machines, they had equipment that the Israelites did not have. God says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're fighting a battle that's already, already won. You can relax. Because I'm going to drive the Canaanites from before you. 25 years of warfare. The only significant loss of life was at I, where they disobeyed. The rest of the time, they routed the Canaanites one city after another. God placed in the Canaanites a spirit of foolishness. Remember when we were teaching through Joshua? And they did ridiculous things like coming out of their wall cities to try to engage Israel in battle. And they were, they were routed. Israel inhabited cities that the Canaanites had built and they enjoyed farms and orchards that the Israelites had prepared and planted. God did all of that for them. And God said, that's Canaan rest. It's all done beforehand. You just enter into rest. That rest that I've provided for you. Now, as I read through the Old Testament, I see Sabbaths, 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 Sabbaths. I ask myself, are we missing something here? Should we be uh, careful that we don't walk more than a thousand yards on Saturday? Should we not engage in any activity at all? On on the Sabbath day, you understand that's Saturday, not Sunday, which is the first day of the week. Saturday is the seventh day of the week. At least as far as the, the Jews, the Jewish calendar was concerned. Are, are we culpable here of terrible sin? Are we like the man who's picking up sticks on the, uh, the Sabbath? No, not at all. Let, 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 let me explain. When we come to the New Testament, the New Testament writers do a very strange thing with the Sabbath. They do away with the day and then they spiritualize it. Now let me explain. The apostles are the inspired interpreters of the Old Testament. You read the New Testament in order to know how to read the Old Testament. The apostles are inspired by the Holy Spirit to explain to us, who interpret to us, this uh, older covenant. They do one of three things. They either cancel out the rules and regulations in the Old Testament, which they very often do, the worship, for example, of Israel. Uh, some of the ordinances, regulations, special days are null. They're set aside. Or they bring over the tenets of the Old Testament intact. 
the command, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not covet. Those are all restated in the New Testament. In fact, every command in the Ten Commandments is restated in the New Testament except the Fourth Commandment, which is the Sabbath uh, law. That is conspicuously absent in the New Testament. So the apostles either annul the Old Testament or they bring over its regulations intact or they spiritualize it. That is, they take the literal events in the Old Testament and they give them spiritual implication for us today. What the writers in the New Testament do with the, with the Sabbath is that they annul the day. They cancel out the day. And then they spiritualize it. The first Christians very methodically, very deliberately went about breaking the Sabbath as far as the day was concerned. They very early shifted their worship from Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath, to Sunday, which they call the Lord's Day. The two references in the book of Acts that make it very clear that almost from the very beginning, they disconnected themselves from the Jewish Sabbath and they began to worship on another day. Our Lord himself started the process when he violated the traditional cherished interpretations of the, of the Sabbath and even gave them new meaning, explained them away, and then said he had the right to do so because he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He had the right to change, to disannul the Sabbath law. And then he went about very systematically breaking their understanding of it, you know, going through the the grain field, stripping off uh, heads of wheat and, and eating, which was against against their uh, interpretation of the Sabbath law. Paul enlarges on our Lord's teaching by saying that God has canceled the written code with its regulations, nailing it to the cross. And then so there will be no misunderstanding, he says, therefore... Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The Sabbath day is a shadow of something far more substantial, which is, which is to come. See, it doesn't really matter what day you observe to worship. In, in this age, you can worship Tuesday afternoon, Friday morning, Saturday night, uh, Thursday at lunch. It, it's unimportant. The, the, the early church worshiped on Sunday, and traditionally we do so because that is the Lord's Day. We celebrate His resurrection. But our Sunday is not in any sense the Jewish Sabbath. The Sabbath day has been canceled. Jesus suggested it. Paul confirmed it, and the book of Hebrews makes it absolutely clear. I want you to turn to chapter 4. And I remember Paul had said that um, the Sabbath was a mere shadow of something more substantial. The writer of Hebrews spells out the implications of that statement it, It tells us what that more substantial thing is. 
Now, uh, Hebrews is a tough book to understand for a lot of people because it's based so much on Old Testament history, and unless uh, you're familiar with that part of the Bible, uh, that you can be clueless when it comes to Hebrews. But let me let me try to explain what's going on here. He's talking about the the people that were in the wilderness, the first generation that died, those that were that would not believe that that they were fighting a battle that was already won. Moses had sent spies into the land. They came back with an adverse report. The generation, that generation said, we're not going, we'll die, our children will die. There are only two that made it into the land from that generation, as you know, Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else perished in the wilderness. Their carcasses littered the desert, as Scripture says. Now, the writer of Hebrews is building on that, that historic unbelief. That generation, you see, that would not enter in. Who were I'm reading actually from chapter 3, verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies littered the desert, that they fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? Writer of Hebrews is talking about the Canaan rest. See, they're not going to enter Israel. That generation, because of her unbelief, would not enter Canaan rest. And he said, they'll not enter my rest. That that was his verdict on that nation. Therefore, verse 14, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of. For we also have had the good good news preached to us, just as they did that generation in the wilderness. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed Enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. I love the writer of authors, uh, the author of Hebrews, because he can never remember the reference. He always just says somewhere it says, as I get older that becomes more and more appropriate. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later, he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own labor, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Now, it's not easy to follow what the writer of Hebrews says. Let me try to explain it as clearly as I can. It's building on this idea of Canaan rest. There's a whole generation that didn't make it into the land because of unbelief. They did not believe that God was at work for them. They felt they had to do something in order to enter into rest. 400 years later, David in Psalm 95, and there's, there's a quote here from Psalm 95, says, Today, today, the offer of rest still stands. The writer of Hebrews says, No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. David couldn't possibly be talking about Canaan rest because this is four, he writes 400 years later. And he's saying there's still an offer of rest. 
So when Israel finally entered into their Canaan rest, that was not the fulfillment of God's promise that He was bringing His people into rest. That was a picture of something else. And 400 years later, David said, it's still possible to enter into rest. And the author of Hebrews says, as a matter of fact, it is still possible to enter into rest. That, and then he goes back to the creation uh, rest, the Sabbath that God instituted when he rested on the seventh day. And he says, that, that, that was the beginning, but that wasn't the end. And Canaan rest is a symbol, but it is not the end. The end is for you to enter into rest. And that's why the gospel was preached to you. What is he saying? Well, it's God has accomplished a finished work. It's done. There's nothing left to be done. Our salvation, our sanctification, and is the whole process by which God conforms us increasingly to His His image. Our glorification that ultimate uh, the ultimate uh, vision that God has to conform us absolutely perfectly to the character of Christ to make us just like God that event that's yet coming up uh, coming up when we when we see him face to face our salvation our sanctification our glorification our service everything we do, is done out of an awareness that it's God who's at work in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. See? We're not talking about a day of rest. We're talking about a lifestyle of rest. Something that takes place every day. Getting up every morning with an awareness that God has already made His way through that day and prepared good works for us to walk in them. See? If you've never entered into the the good news that the work of salvation is finished, then perhaps you don't know that you don't have to make yourself more presentable. You don't need more spit and polish. You don't need to gussy yourself up so you'll be more presentable to God. All you need to do is enter into rest. Believe it. Accept the fact that the work is done. As our Lord said on the cross, it is finished. You may recall on a number of occasions I've referred to the Pharisees' question to Jesus, what should we do to work the works of God? Shocking answer is, you can't do the work of God. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. How audacious of us to think that we can do the work of God, that we can save ourselves, that we can sanctify ourselves, that we can, by pulling on our own bootstraps, bring ourselves to heaven, that we can touch people's hearts and lives through our service and minister. Ministry, how audacious. We can't. This is the work of God, that we believe on Him whom He has sent. The Lord focused His anger on the Pharisees who burdened God's people with such effort-ridden activity that, that they became terribly, terribly disillusioned. Jesus, on the other hand, says, Come unto Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, I have to leave this subject uh, for right now, 
because we want to turn to the Lord's table. I'm going to follow up on it next week and talk about some of the practical implications of it. But I want to leave you with this with this one thought. Shabbat is not a day. It's a disposition. A mindset of resting in God for everything we have to do. Shabbat, which is the Hebrew word for Sabbath, means that we rest in our finished work on Calvary. It means that we stop our frantic efforts to try to make ourselves more more presentable to God. Shabbat means that all that we do, whether it's mopping a floor or consummating a multi-million dollar deal, preparing for an exam or putting down malice, injustice, anger, and greed, and selfishness in our souls, whether it's preaching the gospel or playing with our kids, it's all done out of that wonderful sense of, of rest. Shabbat is rest from our labor. It is an unencumbered, unhurried, relaxed lifestyle that grows out of, a, out of a profound awareness that God has from the very beginning been working for us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Oh, what a relief that is. What a rest that is to our souls. I want to leave you with Psalm 127, which is Solomon's bedtime psalm. You don't have to turn to it goes like this, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Who's building there? Well, the builders do. They have to hammer nails and put up sheetrock. But unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Who's building? The builders, yes, but it's God who's at work, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Who watches? Oh, the watchmen do, but unless the Lord watches, they watch in vain. Listen to this for all of us workaholics. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. He gives to those he loves while he sleep. Now that's not the normal translation of that last line. Most of you remember that that psalm to read. He, he gives sleep to those he loves, but I'm convinced that what Solomon is really saying is, He gives to those He loves while they rest, while they sleep. See, the Jewish Sabbath actually began on Friday night, not on Saturday morning. The day was preceded by the night of rest. And the point of all those Sabbath laws and observances is that while we're out of the action, while we're dozing, while we're resting, while we're relaxing, God is at work. That makes such a wonderful difference in in the, the, the ways in which we approach the problems and perplexities of our life. We have to labor. We have to work. We have to engage. But it's God who's, who's at work in us with the will and to do of His good pleasure. What a relief that is. Let's pray. <clears throat> And as we do so, let's prepare our hearts to gather around the Lord's table. We'll ask the women and men who are to serve to come to the front. And let's uh, center upon the significance of that uh, of that table. It represents, of course, what our Lord did on the cross. It is the means by which we remember His death, as He put it, until He comes.
And we remember that final cry from the cross. It is finished. We do not have to do any work to enter in. We simply accept what He has done. Lord, we thank You for that fact. Help us to remember Your Sabbath, to enter in, to rest, to enjoy what You have done and what You are doing. Amen.